So I'm gonna try to. Okay. All right, Renee, where do you like to eat in Fresno? I love Parma. I I love to eat in general, but I love Parma. I love Max's. Cosmos is another favorite. Doghouse. So, so many choices. I love Ampersand for ice cream. (laughs) What is Ampersand's Um, best ice cream in your opinion? Oh, gosh. I think the best one I had is a peach, and I can't even remember exactly, but some kind of peach thing. But that's, you know, we live in the valley in the summer. And so that to me is. That's summer for me. Ice cream and peach all rolled into one. Like it can't get much better than that. So, <laughs> you know, it really is true uh, that the like seasonal things are the best, like the corn <laughs> annulati at Annex Kitchen, the peach salad at Heirloom, just going to get fresh stone fruit from the farmer's market and just slicing up and throwing it on with some goat cheese on a salad. Like they're really, I mean, it's true what they say about things being seasonal taste better. That that bears out, which is why in my mind, I'm like, well, why don't we do this year round? But I mean, there's not peaches in December. Yeah, I mean, you, you can make local kale taste good, but probably not like peaches, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And then you said, what was the first restaurant you mentioned? Parma. I, love I, I don't know if I've ever been there before. So Parma is on Herndon and Palm and it's locally owned. The owner is actually from Parma, Italy, which is where it gets its name. And so I, you just feel like you're sitting in someone's home. Like it's such a wonderful environment. I think the whole experience is what I love. And the food, it's one of those rare occasions where I feel like every single thing I taste, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Oh my gosh, this is so good. What sets it apart from like your, you know, run of the mill local Italian restaurant? I would just say it's super authentic. They have things on the menu that will First of all, the menu is in Italian. <laughs> so, so, you know, we get a, a language exercise while we're there as well. I love that the owner comes over and welcomes you. And the last time my husband and I were there, it was really busy in the restaurant. And she actually was the one that came to our table. And she, recognizing that her servers were really busy, and she was actually the person that served us. And so it did just felt like we were in her home. And she was like, oh, my goodness, let me get you this and let me get you that. And so, yeah, just delicious food. and just the environment is fantastic. I just, I loved the whole experience when we were there. I do love looking for signs and signals that a place is going to be good. That is, are not just Yelp pictures, like forcing you to pronounce something you don't know how to pronounce. Yes. <laughs> like a good sign that like, they don't care about your discomfort, which, you know, usually is a sign that they care about quality as opposed to meeting the customers exactly where they are in terms of their needs and comfort level. And so I do appreciate that. And I I definitely remember eating in Italy and not knowing how to say anything and having them drop a thing of cantaloupe with prosciutto in front of me and balsamic drizzled on top. And I don't think I've had a better culinary experience probably in my life. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, definitely. I love to eat. I love going to restaurants. And so that was that the hardest part about that question was which one. So I couldn't. (laughs) Yeah. And yet it's always the thing you have to mention all of your children. Um, You can't, you know, exclude some, but then if there's so many, like you're Steve Martin in that movie, like, what are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. I completely get it. Yeah. Um, So we're going to jump into talking about uh, some different positions you've had over your career and some insights that I hope to gather from them. And we're going to start by talking about community service, which has been a big part of your career. So there's this scholar, his name is Robert Putnam. He put out a book called Bowling Alone, uh, which is a book that was really important for me in my intellectual journey. And he identifies a lot of different reasons for social, social isolation, but also a lot of reasons for that kind of its corollary, which is a lack of community engagement. And this was actually written in the late 90s before, you know, smartphone, social media, Netflix were a thing. And so all of the patterns and tendencies he described have now been accelerated. So based on your experience working in the Richter Center, but also in the Chamber of Commerce, what would be your diagnosis of the state of civic and community engagement in not only here, but you can draw broad conclusions about our society? My diagnosis, I guess I'm not totally clear on what you're asking. So what do you, what do you think? What do you think? Let me rephrase here. Um, people are less involved in our local institutions. Um, People are less civically involved. They're less involved in their local rotary clubs in their local uh, bowling leagues to use the reference from the book. Um, Aside from church, 
there's not a lot of places outside the home where people are doing community service. Why do you think that is? I think our lives are so inundated with um, work, with family life. I know for me, I come to work between the commute and the time here and going home, it could be anywhere from 10 to 12 hours a day. Go home and in my life, I have a spouse, I have three kids. They're all very active. And so I think really when we choose to invest our time somewhere, it's just that it's a choice and it is an investment. And we have to see that there has to be meaning to that. And there has to be something that we intrinsically get from that. And whether it's us, that intrinsic giving is just that, like we want to give, we want to contribute to something. There has to be a connection there for us. But I would say, I think what prevents people, unfortunately, is just that busyness. We found during COVID, people were kind of having a really hard time adjusting because it was just initially because people were just staying home <laughs> and it was that constant response prior to COVID was, Oh, how are you doing? I'm busy. Seemed to be a really common response. We went through COVID where people had to stay home and now we're ramping back up. And again, people's responses to how are you doing again has become I'm busy. And so I really think that unfortunately it's the busyness of life that prevents us from being able to engage in areas um, that are outside of what's absolutely necessary. And that could be work and family life. Mm. And do you think there's something generational to this? A lot of the institutions that we I've mentioned before have kind of gone away as being important pillars of our community. I mean, some people, if you go to your local Rotary Club, and I go to them a lot to ask for money, so I know who's there, it's usually retired people or independently wealthy people that don't have the obligations that you're describing. So is it is it is it an income issue you think or do you do you think it's a generational issue? What what would you I, what would you point to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm going to say I don't believe it's generational and this is why I don't believe it's generational. I worked at Fresno State for gosh, spent about 9 months there just before I came into the as sort of an intern between my previous position and came here. And then prior to that was with the um, Richter Center for 10 years. The reason I don't think it's generational is because back in 2005, we had students who were interested in being involved in their community. Fast forward, when I left in 2015, the university students and staff members were contributing over a million hours of community service to the Fresno community. So that's anywhere from a college student age, traditional age, 18 to say 21, 22. And that also included all of our faculty members as well, which could be across the span, the gamut in terms of age and generation. So I don't believe that it's a generational thing. I don't think there's an, an older generation who thinks it's more important. I don't think there's a younger generation that's saying, oh gosh, we're being very civic minded and we have to do this. I think there's factors outside of age that prevent or propel people to participate in community service. And the television is just so good. So why would I want to go and look at all the strange looking local people that I'm around when I can look at beautiful people on a television screen, right? Or or like I can I can just donate something. But I do I do hear what you're saying because I mean I'm thinking about like the Black Lives Matter protests that happened right in the midst of COVID. And that was like, whether people agree with what they were demonstrating about, that is a sign that people were willing to step outside their comfort zone and go outside and do something. So I think the energy is there. Maybe maybe there is also an institutional thing too, where the institutions need to be adapted and adjusted. Because I can imagine if I was a 22-year-old and I walked into my local Rotary Club, I w- the first thing I would ask is, what am I doing here? Yeah. And oh, oh, second, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like, I'm... <laughs> So I'm I'm one of the organizations that I help out with because I'm a librarian is my Friends of the Library organization in Madeira. And I'm considerably younger than most people that are involved. Most of them are retired. And so it's a, a great activity. And I was just thinking, and I was describing this to friends who are kind of in my age range, which is 30s to 40s. And they were like, well, that's interesting. I don't know if I would do that same thing. And to kind of like say, oh, well, it's good for your community. It's it's good to be a good citizen. I don't know if that would kind of reach them in the same way. So maybe it's, and we're going to talk about marketing here in a second, but maybe it's just kind of reframing or creating different kinds of institutions for people to be involved with. 
I think also sometimes people want to be involved and they just don't know how. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that, oh, you could just show up at a meeting is sort of not a comfortable place or space for people because we're so, I think, entrenched in sort of this digital world where the connection of just being in person and just sort of showing up has become sort of foreign for us. So I have found, especially with Fresno State, when I started working there, I would plan community service events and it was me, like the staff member who was going out trying to recruit students. It was really hard that I wasn't their peer. I was definitely not old enough to be a parent that's advising, you know, um, I wasn't an advisor. I wasn't holding a carrot of a grade. And we transitioned a few years after I started at Fresno State and created a student leadership team where we had, you know, upwards of 25 to 30 students who were planning community service events and they would go out and, and invite their peers and invite their, you know, friends and classmates and things like that. The numbers of students who then became involved in the community service exponentially increased exponentially. And so for me, it goes back to being invited. And when you're invited by people that you have an affinity with, that you have similarities with common interests, I think that really, that makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. I think that could be also phrased as like representation too. So if you see people like yourself in organizations and in leadership that can really pull you forward. Now you brought up Fresno State. I want to ask a question about that. And this is also something about kind of stepping outside your comfort zone. So asking for money can seem intimidating to a lot of people, which is understandable, even if that's the basis of your job as a fundraiser or organizer. But we often forget that the tax system is designed to support that. So there's an incentive structure there that you don't have to create. When you're convincing other people to dedicate their resources to an organization, what are the best ways to go about that? Absolutely. Make a connection. Why is it important to them? And I think whether it's time, talent, or treasure, and I think philanthropy, obviously, we're talking treasure. But for us, and in the role that I was in, it was certainly time and talent. Why would they want to contribute that? Why would they have to share what their resources are with other people? And so it was really helping to make a connection um, for that why, like answering for them and helping them to understand there's an opportunity to give regardless of what you give. So it could be your money. It could be your time. It could be that, you know, you're really, really talented at um, graphic design. There's a need for that. There's an organization in our community nonprofit, they need someone to do community organ or graphic design around their efforts. And so for me, it's really about finding um, that connection and helping people understand that what they have, they can share. And it really is sort of that ripple effect, right? Like show, throw, throw that stone in and see how that touches and can make our, our community a better place. And it really, to me, it elevates who we are as people when we can share. Sometimes people think they can't share because, oh, I don't have a million dollars that I can share with someone. Well, no, but maybe you have 50 or maybe you have no money at all, but someone just needs someone to to listen to them. And we can connect you with the veterans hospital and you can go down and you can, you know, sit alongside a veteran and keep them company while they're waiting in the waiting room. I mean, there's value in what every person can contribute. Yeah. I'm going to tell you about a book that I hate. So a book that I hate is called Lord of the Flies. It was written by William Golding, a very disturbed man. And one of the thi- and one of the things that bothers me about it is that it's taught to teenagers and preteens as they're starting to learn about the world and society. And one of the central tenets of the book is that people are inherently selfish and bad. That human nature at its core is not good. And I think that insight is what prevents a lot of people from reaching out to ask for help. You know, I think we were taught in the Gordon Gecko era that greed is good. People are selfish. People just want what they want. But I think what you're pointing to and something that I agree with as well is that people want to do good things and that you just shouldn't be afraid to ask them to do good things. Because even if it's just to reward a sense of like, oh, I'm a good person, like that's in there for most people, but yet most people are afraid to ask people to do good things like donate money, donate time. And I do think that comes from a misconception about what our nature is. And I do think, would you agree with that statement? 
I would, I would absolutely. It's interesting. You just put a thought in my head. There was a gentleman, Don Romsa. He doesn't live in the area any longer, but he was very involved with um, Lutheran campus ministries right across Shaw Avenue from Fresno State. And he taught us a long time ago, give people an opportunity. Just give them an opportunity. When you present with them, like, gosh, you're, you know, you have this great, you know, whatever it is that they have, whatever asset, and let them decide what that asset is that they can share. But just let them know, look, there's an opportunity for you to give. And I still remember Don telling us that years and years ago. I still remember that. And it's really just letting people know that there's an opportunity. And sometimes, again, I think it goes back to that idea that people don't always know how to give. And sometimes we make an assumption what it is that we think they're going to give, right? And when we just open that door to the fact that, look, there's an opportunity, so many times they exceed what we ever even expected would happen. So it's really just about opening the door and just, you know, letting people know, look, there's an opportunity for you to give here. And yeah, we just have to allow people to sort of take that ownership. And sometimes we can sort of fashion that for them. Like, what does that look like? Or what could that look like? you know, in the context of what we're asking, but really just inviting people to even have, you know, the opportunity to, I think is something big also. I think sometimes, you know, organizations sort of miss the boat on that. Like they, like sometimes folks will make an assumption that of course people know who we are. They know what we do. They should know what our needs are. And sometimes people just don't, they just don't and don't even really know how to engage. And so I think really is, that idea of sort of putting out there like look you have time treasure the talent you can get let us open the door this is our cause this is why it's meaningful this is why it might be of interest to you what do you think you could share and really just putting that out there mm-hmm. i think there Absolutely. will be people that will i think there will be people that will be like yeah thanks i'm busy <laughs> on time but i think there's also people that that's going to get sort of the engine running a little bit and sort of get people thinking about how, what could I give? And again, it could be financial. It could be time. It could be their talent. It's hard to say. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about communication right now. So like yourself, I am employed at a educational institution. You were at one time a school district And uh, you brought a lot of innovative initiatives to that school district around communications, strategic plan, a style guide, which I would love to see a style guide. I love a good, I'm a grammar nerd, so I'd love to see a good style guide and a lot more than that. As someone that's currently employed in a school district, I can say that I understand full well that these are sprawling bureaucracies, oftentimes with So many cooks in the kitchen with a lot of different motives, incentives, goals, that it can be hard to kind of create a unified message. So I guess my question is twofold, and this is kind of partially self-motivated as well for me in thinking about where I work. So my question is this, what what were some of the challenges you faced in taking all these cooks in the kitchen and trying to unite them around a common message? And then what lessons did you learn about how to do that successfully in crafting a unified message? Yeah, that's such a great question. Such such great questions. So I think the challenges are just that. The challenges are that they are sprawling and there's many, many agendas. Uh, A lot of people who are trying to achieve a lot of things within a school district. It really, I mean, we're talking over 10, and ours was a smaller school district, about 10,000 students. We're talking 1,500 employees. I mean, we spanned a geographical area of over 600 miles. I mean, it was, you know, it was a pretty big place. Again, Fresno Unified, we're talking over 50,000 students. So, I mean, within the context, right? So let's, let's keep it in context. But what brought everything back, what we would always, always focus on is what our mission was. And so no matter who we, whoever the person was in the organization, whether it was me as the communications person, whether it was a teacher in the classroom, whether it was our food services director or our transportation director, we all knew, and it was very clear to us, our job was to help kids reach their fullest potential. And so at the end of the day, what I would always want to focus on is the work that I'm doing around communications. How am I helping kids reach their fullest potential? 
And so that is really what sort of reigned all of us in, all of us being our team, the team members, our leadership team was really focusing on what can, what are we doing that are helping kids reach their fullest potential? Well, sometimes that was hard to make that connection, right? Like I am writing a newsletter to send out to parents. How is that reaching kids or how is that helping a kid reach their fullest potential? And so then it was really my job to make that leap. So how am I helping that, right? I'm engaging parents. I'm helping them be active participants in their students' education. They're able to learn about what's going on at the school, what could impact their student, how, you know, opportunities that might exist for their student. So there might be opportunities in the classroom, but there might be opportunities outside of the classroom. And so for me, it was really, and I guess maybe this is sort of twofold answering your question. The lesson learned was always focus on what's in the best interest for the student. And if the work that I was doing, whether that was building websites, whether that was creating or bringing in a student communication or, excuse me, a school to home digital platform for communication, whatever that was, as long as at the end, end of the day, we could say, this is good for students, and this will help a student reach their fullest potential, then I feel like we were successful. And the areas when I, when I went to the school district, and obviously it takes a little bit of time to understand the landscape that you're in. That was the first K-12 school district I had ever worked in. And it's really not even K-12. It's like, you know, preschool up through, you know, I mean, some of our special ed programs go up to age 21. So, I mean, K-12 is sort of a, a misnomer, but it's really identifying, you know, where those needs were, where do we have gaps? And so for our school district, one of the gaps that we found out explicitly through COVID, and we sort of knew this going in and we knew it going into COVID and then COVID was like, it blew it up. Like you couldn't ignore it any longer. Is or we, the, the parent communication system that we had was we would send letters home with students. Well, what happens when your messenger isn't there to send the message home anymore, right? And so we really didn't have a digital platform. We had a phone call, uh, a, a robocall system. And so that was great for things like, hey, come to the school carnival next week. It's not great. When we have to go and explain, you know, in a, you know, 60 minute phone call, like, hey, we're not coming back to school on Monday and here's why. So again, part of the work that I did there was assessing for the needs. How was this in the best interest of the student? And then thankfully I had an administration that was thoughtful and we were all in alignment that we had to do what was best for kids and we had to be able to, you know, help them reach their fullest potential. And it's not ever going to be okay for a student or for a parent or excuse me, family. It's not always parents, but the family of our students, it's never going to be okay if they're not able to connect with their, their students school. And so again, those are some lessons learned, really focusing, identifying areas of gaps in communication that may prevent a family from being able to engage with their students' education. And so I, we spent a lot of time trying to identify where those gaps were and really sealing up those gaps so that we could feel like we were really tight with our communication and that a parent needed to know something, they knew where to go and get that information. And if they couldn't find the information, they knew who to contact in order to get it. Yeah, I think it's right. I think you do have to be annoying with your core mission with people because all those are ulterior, ulterior motives that get you know brought out in meetings over, do you have this line right here? Do we mean that? And you just have to be that person that just says, well, let's go back to the mission. Let's go back to the mission. Let's go yeah. back to the mission, which can be irritating. But that's what happens in bureaucracy is you get people that are like in their little box and then they forget about the larger organizational goals. And then we get all sidetracked. Right, right, right. I think I know it's it seems annoying, but when every person in the organization can understand why they're where they're at doing what they're doing and who they're benefiting then i think we're on task it doesn't matter if it's the custodian cleaning toilets it doesn't matter if it's a teacher in a classroom or if it's the superintendent as long as we all have that one tenant that is consistent it's the same mission and we all understand it then that you know that that plane is flying in the right direction okay all right. Last question before we jump into your most recent position. So most recently you worked at Fresno State uh, before the foundation. And I wanted to ask about communicating with the Gen Z. Uh, 
<laughs> what have you found effective for com- I work in a I work in a high school library. So like I know some things about communicating with the Gen Z, but I I'm sure you've learned some things, some things that work and things that don't work. Um and do you think social media is actually a tool that has efficacy in building movements and action and things? Because I sometimes feel like, and you can correct me as as a communications person, I sometimes feel like social media is kind of used in the way, kind of like how startups would like, we need to have all of these, like a private chef here and like all these really nice things. And we don't really, we can't really prove to you that that has any efficacy, but I think it's necessary. And so some business will be like, we need a social media manager. We need all these people doing these things, but like, what is my ROI on that? Am I getting returns on that? Is it much, my returns going to be much higher if I just stick someone like on the street? Like I, I remember, so I went to school in San Francisco and there was like this little pathway to get to the kind of like the, the, the quad area at the center of the university and San Francisco. So there's always these uh, people that uh, were making you feel bad about dead turtles. And they would like, they would stand at the street corner and then they would target you. And I had to walk by them every single day. So I got used to like different ways to say no, but, <laughs> but like if I'm scrolling through my feed and I see a dead turtle, I'm going to feel bad. And I just got back from vacation in Hawaii. So I saw a turtle and so I'd feel particularly bad. So if I see a turtle, I'll just swipe past it. But if I have to walk past that person and have a conversation about a dead turtle, it's probably going to stick with me a little longer. So that's kind of a roundabout way of saying, do you think it's overblown, its efficacy, or do you think it really can reach people? I think what's most important is understanding your audience and understanding how they communicate. No different than if you and I are going to have a conversation, but I don't speak English, you're not going to be able to get through to me. And so for me, it's really about understanding that audience and finding out how does that audience communicate. Social media for Gen Z right now seems to be a real hot spot. It's not everyone. You're not going to reach every person in Gen Z with social media because the fact of the matter is some choose to not engage in it at all. For others, it's just a noisy space. It's just too much, it's overload. And so I think, you know, social media has become something of, you know, when we think of TV, when we think of radio, we think of newspapers, newspapers are sort of going by the wayside. But when it comes to communication, there's not a silver bullet. I don't think there's ever gonna be a silver bullet. I mean, you know, if smoke signals work, we'd still be doing smoke signals, right? Like we have to have a variety of means for communicating. Gen Z, largely, I would say a good portion, good percentage, that's where they're communicating. That's the world that they're communicating in and definitely communicating digitally. I think Gen Z, something I learned is they're a very environmentally conscious generation. And so I had several students and student assistants that I work with that said, why are we still printing books? Can't we just do a digital version and we can go on and pick it up? Yeah, we can, we should. So I think what I learned about working with Gen Z is it's just about listening to them and how they communicate, which is no different than if we're talking with the baby boomers or, you know, you know, Gen, Gen X, Gen Y, don't any of them, right? Like, excuse me. I think it's really just about understanding who the demographic is, how are they communicating, and then recognizing that it's not a silver bullet. You're not going to reach all of them. And it's being persistent. Something that was really useful for us at the university is we had a phenomenal student assistant that handled our social media. So she, everything from when you post to what you're posting to designing the post, like that was, you know, for us, you know, I I could be the mom of my student, literally, like I have a daughter in college, like, (laughs) you know, I know what that communication difference looks like between my daughter and myself. And so literally like myself and my students, like, the way that I communicate is probably not going to be the same way that a peer-to-peer communicates. And so for our office, it made the best sense. Let's find a student who's an excellent communicator. And she was, and she created great social media graphics, had great engagement with our social media. So do I think it has efficacy? It might, but honestly, when we look at social media and we see how long certain platforms last, I mean, did you have a MySpace? <laughs> 
right? Like, so, you know, I think, you know, some adaptation of social media is going to be here to stay. Now, whether or not that's Instagram or Twitter or, or what that is, I think that's changing. But I don't know that the idea of a social media in, in itself, I don't think that's going away. Yeah, I don't think it's going away either, but it definitely seems like it's fragmenting. And so then we're going to have all of these spaces where we have to communicate. And it's going to, and in some ways that'll be nice because I think we can target certain kinds of people based on spaces and goals. But then it also is like they're saying, like there's going to be no, there's going to be no silver bullet. There's going to be so many bullets and we're going to have to fire in every direction, so many different ways. And that makes your job harder, right? As, as thinking about communications, because you got to yeah. figure out who you want to reach and why. But I think, I think yeah. you're right. I think, and that's kind of what I was getting at was just this kind of lazy idea that you just post something and then it's good to go. Uh, it has yeah. to be much more, a much more intentional, concerted effort to target specific kinds of people in spaces. Yeah. So yeah, right. it's, it seems it's a much it more thoughtful. Yeah, it's a much more thought effort. I mean, we were just looking before you and I got on the call a little bit earlier today, we were looking at some social media marketing and it's amazing what we can pick and who we want to target. I mean, we can go all the way down. Like, are, are people married? Are they educated? Do they live in the zip code? What age are they? What, you know, gender? How do they identify? You know, there's so many ways to, you know, select where our message goes to. And I don't know that, you know, mass media didn't have the ability to do that. And so- you know, in, in some ways, maybe from a marketing standpoint, it's kind of a good thing because we're reaching exactly who we think we want to reach. The only bad part of that is then the peripheral who we may have wanted to reach, we're not reaching. So again, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think, you know, definitely um, Gen Z, I would say a good majority, they're on social media, that's what they're using. And, you know, they're pulling in not only their peers, but their parents, their grandparents. And so I think, you know, social media is not going by the wayside, but you're a hundred percent right. It's fragmented. It's a little confusing from a communication standpoint, you know, do, are, are we on everything? Are we not? And I think that goes back to, you know, knowing it's our task to know who is our audience and who do we want to reach. And then from there we can decide how we're reaching them. Yeah. And then there's the, the obvious corollary, which is, do you want to reach people that are less likely to give, even though it would be a good thing. And so we can go down the rabbit trail or rabbit, whatever it is, uh, yep. but it's, those are organizational decisions. And I was, the other thing I was going to say is the fact that you can target me specifically based on demographic patterns creeps me out and is part of the reason why I don't have a Facebook anymore, but that's a whole different subject. Let's, <laughs> let's jump into the community foundation. Cause I have lots of questions. So what, what initially drew you to work with them and let's unpack for people just what a community foundation is, because it is one of those kind of like broad words. Foundations can refer to many different things. Some of them are governmental foundations. Some are like, like the Fresno state foundation that have like institutional connections. There's lots of different kinds. So what drew you and then uh, break it down for us. What initially drew me to the community foundation, I obviously I have a background in communications and then also an incredible um, love for community service and spent, you know, nearly 11 years doing that with Fresno State. Um, coming to the community foundation allowed me to marry those two, that interest to that passion that I have for serving our community with my communication skill set. And it just seemed like a great fit. Once I met the people who worked here, I had no doubt this is a phenomenal place to be with people who really um, have their hearts in the right place and a, an incredible work ethic and, and really a passion for seeing um, improvement and, and elevating of our community. That's really what drew me to the work here. Yeah, that also, and the fact that they've never had a communications director before. And so they were really looking for some, some uh, work around strategic communications. And that really, for me, is very exciting. The school district that I went to previously didn't have a communications officer. That was a new role. And it's, it's uh, exciting to go into a place and space where something hasn't existed before. And you have the opportunity to sort of build the foundation for what that looks like. And so, yeah, for a variety of reasons, it seems like a great fit to come here. We're a traditional philanthropic organization. So community foundation, folks who are looking to make donations, they've been, you know, financially blessed, who want to share um, their, their wealth with say a charity or, or a cause, um, but they may not want all of the responsibilities that come with that and all the legalities they 
are invited, they can um, invest or share their their um, blessings, <laughs> for lack of a better word, their uh, donations with the community foundation. They get an immediate tax benefit from doing that. And then they can share with us how they want that money dispersed. And so we manage all of the legalities around that, all of the important financial pieces of that. And we can help them share that money with the um, causes that are important to them. The other side of that where our community foundation is really, I think, excels is really we're very connected in our community with community benefit organizations that are doing a variety and serving a variety of needs. And so we're able to really advise our donors with opportunities for where their money can go and who that money can benefit yeah. And I had a previous conversation with Rob Saroyan at uh, Children's about this specific thing, which is there's a lot of these organizations that have popped up to help people give. Like the famous one is Give Well, which is like a, a website that reviews charities and determines their overhead costs, how effectively they use money. And people like all of us, we, you pull on our heartstrings and then we'll give to whoever. And we don't know whether we can, whether you should trust them. You don't know if their administrative costs are 50% of whatever your money is. Right. So that kind of creates a need for intermediaries like you to kind of guide that money. So what are some of the ways that that money is used in our community? Yeah, absolutely. So we have what's called the Fresno Drive Initiative, which is actually made up of 14 different initiatives that's addressing all sorts of different causes in our valley. Things, you know, education, food insecurity, and environmental issues. And so there are a variety of causes that Fresno Drive and so we're able to work with the different organizations that Fresno Drive works with to be able to pair the donors' money with causes in the community. Okay. So one of the big challenges that you and I had a chance to talk about actually before we started recording this conversation a few days ago, right? We could go something like that yeah. was perception. So there are certain perceptions that have been created about where we live. Most right. of the time, those perceptions originate from the outside, but what tends to happen is those perceptions get reflected back here. And then there's I see a few different responses. Two of the most typical are one is defensive. So we're allowing the outsiders to set the kind of discourse. And then we just argue with them. No, this place is, it is a great place to live. And it's like all places have their ups and their challenges and then their strengths and what makes them great and what makes them frail and in need of help. So some people can get defensive, which I don't think is all that productive because it's allowing the outsiders to set the conversation. And then there's people that deny it, that just, it's fine. And those people are usually people that have means and are just want to be outside of that. And so don't want to worry about it or think about it or pretend like it doesn't exist. Or there's the third option, the people that are resigned where they think this is just what it is. This is the Valley. It's always going to be this way. Those people outside are probably right. This place is bad. And so I think all three of those are all different responses that are all allowing the outsiders to dictate the way we should think about ourselves. And I don't like that. And I know you don't like that either. And I think the only way forward is to communicate ourselves and for us to set the narrative, which is why I do this podcast, which is why you have the work you do. So I guess that was a little bit of a monologue. But can you share what you think is wrong with the perceptions that outsiders give to Fresno and what we need to do to create a new narrative? I don't know that anyone from the outside can be expert on what happens inside. And that's in any topic, right? Like we've never played basketball. Say, say we've never played basketball before, but man, we're like the best armchair critics. Like we can tell every NBA coach what he should have done, every NBA player, what they should have done. The fact of the matter is that's sort of how I feel about people who say a narrative about Fresno and about our Valley. They're armchair critics and it's easy to see, you know, to maybe criticize or be critical about, you know, something, but we know better. The subject matter experts are the people who live here every single day. We are the subject matter experts for the area and space that we live. Now, with that said, 
That doesn't mean we know about every single thing that happens in our valley or every single thing that happens in Fresno, right? Or, or communities around Fresno. So we have to rely on the experts to inform us of that, which is inherently why one of the programs that we work with through Fresno Drive, we have neighborhood hubs. As a community foundation, we don't ever want to go into a neighborhood and say, oh, we're the savior. We're coming in to tell you what you need to do to fix you. We don't do that. We go in and work with the leaders in those neighborhoods to tell us, what is it that you need? What is it that you need in this neighborhood? What are your needs? And then we know what the resources are where we may be able to help them meet those needs. So those who want to write the narrative and the script about Fresno, especially from the outside, are not the best reliable sources. I think we really need to identify who those experts are here in our community and allow them to write the narrative and allow them to tell the story of who Fresno is and what parts of Fresno we're talking about. I truly believe there's great things that happen all over this whole city, but I can't tell you there's definitely parts of the city I've never been to. And so, you know, we have to be able to rely on those sources and places and spaces to let them be the subject matter expert and let them tell us what is great about the area and the community and the neighborhoods that they live. And I think when we do that and we can uh, give people a platform to be able to tell that story, um, then that's when we're truly going to hear about the wealth, uh, not only financial wealth, but the community wealth that we have in our area. Yeah. So let's say you're sitting at a, a Stanford football game and the person next to you lives in Palo Alto. He asks <laughs> where you live. You say you live in Fresno. And he says, oh, you live there? Oh, I'm sorry. What would you say? Gosh, what have you heard about Fresno? <laughs> there you go. Ask heard. questions. That's yeah, such that's a the- yeah, that's such an interesting, interesting response. Can't say you're the first person I've ever heard that from, but what what have you heard about Fresno? And I think it's really opening up and and helping. We can't make assumptions about why people might have a response like that. Um, they could have gone to a horrible uncle's house that is in Fresno for Thanksgiving and never yeah, want to go back. Right? Yeah. Or maybe they've heard of some of the, the challenges that we have here. Well, you know, I think that takes some unpacking, right? Like, why those challenges exist, but we also have great, great things in Fresno. And so, yeah, I think if someone were to ask me or respond to me in that way, I think I would respond with a question. Oh my gosh. Well, what have you heard? Yeah. Well, I, I love, I, I love telling this story, but I've got a friend that lives in Oakland and he, you know, it's, it's currently like 73 degrees there, but he makes the tra- <laughs> That's beside. <laughs> That's beside the point. He, like a religious pilgrim, travels to uh, Fresno multiple times every summer so he can float in the San Joaquin River with me. And he loves it. And he's always telling people in Oakland and San Francisco, he works in the tech industry. He's like, oh, you really need to come float in the Central Valley. And it's like, that right there is like what you need to do. Just- there is great things here. You know, you just, you just have to like take someone by the hand and show them because when you're looking from the outside, yeah, you're just not going to, you're not going to see it. You're not going to see it until you're in it with people that love it. And so I, I, think I, I was, yeah, I think I was really blessed as a kid. My parents moved here from Michigan when I was four. And so we spent, my parents are both from really large families. And so we spent a lot of time entertaining family members, aunts, uncles, and, you know, cousins that would come and visit from Michigan. And I think I was really blessed because my mom and dad were really excited to live in the Valley because there was so much here that we could show them that we didn't have in Michigan. We have mountains. Oh my gosh. We could drive an hour and be in the mountains. Like you don't have mountains in Michigan, like the giant trees. Like I remember like aunts and uncles being like, are those real? Like couldn't even believe that that was, you know, a real tree. And then I remember like we would take them out to the ocean and we're like, this is the Pacific ocean, you know, like this is a big deal. Right. And so, you know, it was just really neat. But then my parents would also, you know, highlight, you know, different places and spaces we would go 
in, in the Fresno area. Like I remember going to, there was a winery and I wish I could remember which winery it was, but they used to offer tours. And it was like, we sort of got in this routine. Like when we would have family come, like we knew all the places my mom and dad were going to take them. Like we were going to go to Grant Grove. We were going to go out to like Monterey. We were going to go to this winery. We were going to go to Sunmade. Like there were places that we were absolutely going to go. And they were these sort of gold nugget places that, you know, my parents were just really proud of living here and, and just loved this area. And so I'm really grateful that that was really the mindset that my parents put in. And, you know, it wasn't until I was a bit older that I learned, you know, what some of our challenges are living here. And, and I believe there's challenges everywhere. You know, this, you know, sometimes we've just allowed that narrative here to sort of be told to us. And so not, not discounting by any means that we have challenges, definitely not, but we, you know, we equally have to be able to focus on what's good also. Yeah. Well, being married to a clinical psychologist has made me very aware of certain patterns, which is when you point out faults in someone else, it's often to hide your own feelings of insecurity or things that you don't like about yourself. Right. And so when outsiders are pointing about certain things, they're probably doing that for a reason has nothing to do with you. Right. And there's nothing to do with Fresno, to be honest. And so I think we just need to talk to each other more probably in Fresno. That would be a good, that would be a good place to start, but let's, before we keep going down this rabbit hole, before I start talking about Wendell Berry and I start talking about localism and the importance of place, because no one wants to hear me preach about that. Before we wrap up with books, I wanted to give you a moment to talk about an exciting event that's coming up. An author, Heather McGee, is coming to town and doing an event about her book, The Sum of Us. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and the event? Right, absolutely. So as you know, Central Valley Community Foundation, our mission is to connect capital and communities for a just and thriving Central Valley. And so we, as you know, are located here in the exact middle of California. We serve a sixth uh, county region, but we have some serious challenges in our area, economically, environmentally, certainly some racial inequities that are very um, evident and prevalent. And so while those are definitely issues, we also believe that there's a way forward and we want to be a catalyst for how we can help lead people forward. And so one of the ways that we're doing that is by inviting a New York Times bestseller um, author, Heather McGee. She has written this book, The Some of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Um, she is going to be um, Royce Hall at Fresno High on September 27th. It's a free event talking exactly about the message that she shares in the book and that that we racism is built into some of our, many of the ways that we operate as a country and, and how it's not about pointing fingers. It's not about who's right or who's wrong or who's racist and who's not racist. It's about recognition and understanding. Like this is the way that things have been done. And by recognizing, we don't have to continue that. We can make changes so that we all elevate together. And so one of the examples that she shares, this is a great TED talk, it's only 10 minutes. I recognize people, you know, or recommend folks look into that. Again, reading a whole book can seem a bit daunting. I know I have a whole stack next to my bed and I'm like, I'm gonna read that, I'm gonna read that. And they've been sitting there for, you know, a long time. But a, a 10 minute TED talk is, is digestible and it's easy to listen to. But one of the things she talks about in there that I love is she talks about a pool that was built in, I believe it was Montgomery, Alabama, she was saying back, and I don't remember exactly what year, but it was several years ago, that was just for whites. And so when there was some opposition about uh, that came to the city government about, you know, the fact that, you know, black people would also like to swim in the swimming pool. Um, Their solution to that was not to allow black people. Their solution was, you know what, we're just going to fill the pool and no one is going to benefit from this pool. And so what the premise of her book is that racism hurts everybody. It's not just people of color. It's also hurts white people as well. And so it's really about looking at how racism and so she is she is an economist, um, and so she tells the story of how she even came upon this work um, was not really the focus or her goal. Um, and so I think that's what's nice about the ten minute TED talk is that you can hear a little bit about that. And so um, we're excited to have her come. We really think that this is someone who can sort of 
start to propel the conversation around how do we heal and how do we come together and how do we recognize like this isn't good for any of us, regardless of what we look like. Yes, these are things that have happened in the past, but how do we start having conversations to educate, to understand so that we can then make decisions going forward that will be better for everyone. And so that's really the premise of the book. We're super excited to have her here. She is very, very well known. I mean, again, New York Times has recognized her. She has the TED Talk. She's been on The Daily Show numerous times. So definitely a well-respected person in this circle. And so we are looking to, we really think she has a message that our community will, will be very interested in. Would love to pack out the theater. There's room for a thousand people. We really hope to open the arms far and wide. It is a free event. Really just want to begin that conversation of how we know we have disparities. We know we have challenges in our community. How do we look at those through a lens of getting better? Not to point fingers, not to say, oh, you're racist. Oh, you're not. That's not what this conversation is about. This conversation is just recognizing with historical reference what has happened and how do we move ahead from that? And I think this is a great opportunity for folks to, to really come together and hear this message. Yeah, you guys have done a great job. I mean, I saw that you had Richard Rothstein in whose book, The Color of Law, was one of my favorites a few years ago. And his new book, I haven't read yet, but I'm excited to read. And on that note, my favorite section, book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners? The Bible, absolutely. Number one, always will be my number one. I just, that's me. I'm a Christian. And and so I believe that. I think Heather's book at this time in space, in in place where we are, I think is another great, great book. Two more, Four Frames by Bowling and Deal. I love because I think any situation that we go into, the four frames really give us four perspectives to look at an issue when something happens. So a lot of times we get locked in on one perspective and it's like, oh, that happened because X, Y, Z. Well, if we can back up, reduce our emotion and look at things through a variety of frames, we often come out better on the other end. So I love the four frames by Bowling and Deal. And then the last one that I absolutely love is Gung Ho. And Gung Ho is a leadership book. And it talks about, there's a variety of things that it talks about, but we all lead at times in an organization and we all have to be followers at times in an organization. And it talks about how we do that. And so as leaders in an organization, how do we allow the people that we lead to also be leaders. And sometimes as leaders, we need to take a step back and just allow people to understand the purpose of why they're in an organization, why what they do matters and why it's important to let them understand that big picture, give them the autonomy to run and take ownership and leadership on their own. And then lastly, there's a thing called the gift of the goose. And that's about cheering folks on. And it doesn't always have to cheering on congratulating, building people up doesn't only have to come from leadership. That doesn't have to be top down. That can be throughout the organization. And so Gung Ho is a book that it's an old one. It is not a recent one, but that's one of my favorites. And when I look back over my career, that was something I read years and years ago. And when I do look back over my career, time and time again, the principles of that book have have come up. So I think that's a great classic. Thank you so much for talking with me, Renee. I really appreciate it. Thank you.